Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Monday, August the 7th, 2023, and it is a holiday in Ontario where I am sitting, but it is not a holiday in the United States, and I use that as a bit of an introduction to my guest today. My guest is Katrina Haynes, who is uh, sort of an expert, I think, for sure, by any objective standard and subjective standard, my own, by the way, uh, expert in uh, U.S. expatriate taxation. Uh, she runs her own sort of educational initiatives. And I actually said it on one of her seminars sometime in the last couple of weeks on U.S. Social Security, which is what she has agreed to discuss with me today for the benefit of all these American citizens living outside the United States who have sort of a vague awareness that there is such a thing as U.S. Social Security, but what, if anything, does that mean to me? And if it does mean anything, how would I go about participating in that? But also, before we get started, I want to acknowledge a most special guest, additional guest. This is a two-for-one today, because seated beside Katrina is her daughter, Genesis, who at four years old is capable of a very good hello, how are you? Which was great. So, welcome, Katrina, and welcome, Genesis. And how are you today, Katrina? Thank you, John, and thank you for having us today. <laughs> we are glad to be here, excited to talk about this. I I enjoy talking about anything related to expats and and um, and these types of issues. So I'm I'm excited to be here today and I'm I'm ready to to just be whatever I need to be. As helpful <laughs> as you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well that well this is great. Um okay. So I mean I think everybody knows what Social Security is in a general sense. It's something or other the government pays you after uh, you know, you work for a certain period of time and paid in enough, I suppose. I suppose that's a gross overgeneralization. But why don't we kind of divide this discussion into two broad categories? First, imagining you're not in the United States. I'm sorry, you are in the United States and starting from that. And then imagining that somewhere along the line, you decide whether by accident or design, oh, my God, I'm going to go work in another country. Mm -hmm. So why don't we begin with just what's up with U.S. Social Security anyway, assuming you never leave the United States? How does it work exactly? And what do you get? So you um, it, it's a lot. That's a big question that I'm going to try and put into a short answer. So the short version is it is a benefit that you receive from the government for basically paying into the Social Security system while you are working. So as I don't know how old everyone was when they started working, I think I was like 12 or 13, I was pretty young. And so you start paying taxes, you're paying to the federal, you're paying to the state and you're paying into the social security administration and you're paying um, through, through withholdings, right? So as you're paying, as you're working, you are accumulating credits. So once you have 40 or uh, 40 quarters, which is about 10 years worth of work, then you qualify for benefits as you retire. So if you never leave the United States, then you're going to receive an amount of money that is going to be kind of adjusted for how much money you were making at the end of, of your working career, or 
the at the end of the time you were paying into the Social Security Administration. So that may not necessarily, if, if you were um, disabled, that may be earlier. Um, if you are receiving benefits from someone else who might have been disabled or who passed away, then it's going to be based on, on what their earnings were. Okay. Now, wow, just hold on a second. That is yeah. a ton of information. You were yes. right. <laughs> Let's break that down a little bit, okay, for, you know, those of us, who, I'm referring mainly to myself, who specialize in being simple-minded, okay? Yes, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I think the first thing, or at least I inferred, was that uh, you need 40 quarters or 10 years of work to get benefits. Have I got that correct. right? That is correct. All right. So, it's, it's 10 years-ish. So it's, a, it's basically once you make $1,500 and a quarter, then um, I think it's once you make $1,500 in a year, actually, I think that's when you get your 40 quarters. So most people think 40 quarters, but you can get 40 quarters in a year, depending on how much money you make okay. or in a, in a month, in a paycheck. You know what I'm saying? So, but most people just think of it as 10 years worth of work, but it could depend on how much you money you make. You, you had 40 times 1,500 in mm -hmm. one year, that would do it for you? No, 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 no. You only get, you would only get uh, four quarters in a year. Okay. But it's I think it, I think it's uh, for every fifteen hundred dollars, you get a quarter or you get one quarter. Okay. So let's say you make twenty thousand dollars because you're a CFO in a month. You're going to get four quarters with that first paycheck. I see. And you don't have to work the whole year. So let's say if you were a foreign national coming into the U.S. and you made that twenty thousand dollars in one year and in, in one month in December, you would get four quarters for that month even though you only, you didn't work the whole year. So it's, it's okay. 10 years-ish. Yeah, okay. So yeah. anyway, it's reasonable to think in terms of it 10 years, but maybe it could right. be. Yeah, it could be slightly less, but okay. for most people, it's much, much more. Okay, and then you get these benefits. And my understanding is that, um, this is just my memory, uh, mm -hmm. that it's based on the highest 35 years of earnings or something of that nature. Is that yes. Correct? So typically it's the the latter part of your career. It's typically, it's not going to be the beginning. It's, they're going to look at, they're going to look at the highest money you've paid in and then go, go from there. And then that's going to determine how much benefits you get. Also, your benefits go up the longer you wait to retire. So my dad right now is, is playing this game this game where he keeps waiting to retire because every six months he gets another statement that says, well, if you wait another year, this is what your benefit will be like. And if you wait another year, this is what your benefit will be like. And because of his pension and he's still working full time, um, he's like, well, I'll just wait another year. I'll just wait another year. <laughs> it's like, okay, they're doing that because they're not going to pay you all their money. The longer you wait, you know, chance are, unless you're going to live to be hundreds of years old, you're not going to get all your money. So yeah, they're going to give you a little bit more, but at some point you need to just go ahead and start. Well, am I right that as a rule of thumb, it makes no sense to delay after age 70. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's about where he is. He is, um, he's six, 68. So he's trying to push to wait until 70 to fully retire and start drawing. But once you get to 70, you probably need to start pulling that money. Okay. Out. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, and, and just sort of add on to this, uh, my impression from outside the United States looking in um, is that it's actually quite lucrative in the in the uh, sense of the residual benefits, spousal benefits and survivor benefits and things like that. Do you have any particular comments on that? Or I would say lucrative. It's you're not going to lose it. So, I mean, in that in that 
sense, then yes, it, it's not like the, the numbers fluctuate. They will get what you would have gotten. So you don't lose it. If something does happen to you, um, then it it doesn't go away. The benefit don't go doesn't go away. It'll just go to a survive, you know, a survive. Oh well, yeah, but that's my point. That yeah, somebody that, else that, yeah. can get, that mm -hmm. other people can get benefits from your correct. entitlement to Social Security, right? Correct. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And, and just while I'm on that topic, uh, that's irrelevant, right, to where you live. Uh, so, for example, ish, <laughs> or less. Ish. So, if you are a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, then the answer to that question is yes. Um, if you were a resident alien, when you earned your social security benefits, meaning you were not a citizen, not a green card holder, you happen to be living in the United States, you were a tax resident of the United States, you were required to pay federal, state, and social security, you still get those benefits as long as you met the other requirements. So if you lived in the U.S. for 10 years, you worked your 40 quarters, and then you moved back to your home country, you can still draw U.S. social security. The difference is, if you are married to a non-resident alien, a non-citizen, non-resident of the United States, then they can only get your survivor benefits if they have lived in the United States within the past six months. If they haven't, then they suspend your benefits. So um, hence the ish. <laughs> All right, so maybe. So the message would be, uh, you know, sort of worth inquiring in any case. Correct. All right, so here we are, uh, and I gather this is a scenario you've had a lot of experience with. Uh, is you've got somebody there who's, you know, working in the United States, paying into Social Security, and all of a sudden they get an envelope that says, the good news is we're giving you the opportunity to work abroad, but the bad news might be we're giving you an opportunity to work abroad. Right. <laughs> so, I got, you know, I gather this is all sort of circumstantial and contextual. Okay. But how does all this work? And I'm sort of, I guess, hinting at the issue of totalization agreements, et cetera. Right. But, but mm -hmm. how does all this work, you know, for somebody who's going to move outside the United States? So if you are, it's going to depend on how the move is structured. So if I decide I'm going to move and I'm going to go work with John domestically in Canada and I pick up and I go and work domestically in Canada. As a local employee, then I'm going to be subject to all Canadian tax, federal, um, provincial, all of it. You're going to pay the same tax as any other person living and working in Canada. By the way, Which, I, I just want to interject here that in Canada, there are an awful lot of taxes. <laughs> I am in case you didn't that. know that. <laughs> yes. Sorry. So, no, no, you're fine. So you wouldn't have, there would not be a requirement to pay into the U.S. social tax system as a dependent worker, meaning I am the equivalent, I get the equivalent of a WT in Canada's a T4. I would, I would be a local employee. Now let's say instead my company decides to send me to Canada to work for a Canadian affiliate, but they will keep me on U.S. payroll. If that's the case, then I would continue to pay because I'm on U.S. payroll. I would still have to pay U.S. federal tax and social tax at a minimum. But because we have, as John mentioned, as you mentioned, a totalization agreement, that is a separate social security specific international agreement. So it's the equivalent of a tax treaty that's social security specific between the U.S. and Canada that says, hey, 
you're paying into the US social tax system, we can exempt you from the Canadian social tax system, but you have to remain on US payroll for that to work, okay? And if that's the case, then, then you're good. Now, again, that's as a dependent worker. So you're getting the equivalent of a W-2 or Canadian T-4. If you are self-employed, it goes the other way. So U.S. self-employed individuals, they pay their social tax portion through self-employment tax on IRS uh, Schedule SE. So that's your contribution into the U.S. social tax system. If you are an independent worker, you're self-employed, then you can still use the totalization agreement, but it works the other way. You would pay so social tax in Canada. It would exempt you from social tax in the U.S. You would not have to pay self-employment tax in the U.S. As long as you have, in all cases, what's called a certificate of coverage, which basically is a letter from the entity where you're paying social tax that confirms I, Katrina, am paying social tax into either the U.S. Social Security Administration if I'm a de dependent worker or into the Canadian social tax system if I'm an independent worker, worker so that the other country will not assess those same wages um, with their local social tax. Okay. So mm -hmm. at the risk of oversimplification. Please. All right. At the risk of <laughs> oversimplification. If you move to Canada to work for a U.S. company in Canada, the same company, mm -hmm. you're not paying Canada pension mm -hmm. plan. You're going to continue right. to pay U.S. Social Security. In other words, everything just continues. Correct. You move to Canada. You're not working for the for a, a U.S. for the, I guess the same U.S. company, you get another job working for a Canadian company, or you say I'm going to use one of these great startup visas for some business to go to Canada. I don't know how great they are, but I do know they exist. Uh, then you know what? Uh, I'm not paying into the U.S. Social Security system. I'm going to pay into the Canadian system, right? Correct. All right. Okay. So. Why is a totalization agreement a benefit? I mean, you know, the first time I heard of this, oddly enough, I'll tell you how I saw it as a benefit, which is probably mm -hmm. totally perverse. But the way I saw it was, oh, well, you know, this is a way to avoid U.S. Social Security taxes. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the right way to look at it or not, actually. Uh, I mean, well, what's the purpose of these things anyway, other, other than to cater to people's selfish interests of paying less money? In a general sense, what's the purpose of this? So high level, that's a great question. The whole point is to continue your, to give you benefit in the country where you have the greatest chance of vesting in the program. So if I'm going to Canada for three years, likely I'm not going to invest enough to be able to draw on the back end. And I've disrupted my 40 quarters in the US, right? So what it does is it ties you to the social tax country program where you're going to get the most benefit. Now, there's ways, and this is more complicated than we need to talk about, where you can take partial credits. Let's say you never vest in a particular country. We can use totalization agreements to put all of those partial credits together to get you a benefit. But, um, but overall, the point of the totalization agreement is to keep you tied to the country where you would have the greatest benefit. So without a totalization agreement, let's say I go to Zambia, we don't have a totalization agreement. Then 
I have to pay social tax in the U.S. because I'm coming from a U.S. company. I'm staying on my W-2 and I also have to pay social tax in, in the host jurisdiction. And because social tax is funded both by the employee and the employer, my employer also has to pay social tax on my wages as well. So a lot of times this process, especially for dependent workers, is managed by the, the, the company because they're going to have to pay in addition to having to withhold and remit for, from the individual as well. Right. So so they, they want to reduce their expenses. OK, so exactly. in a general sense, OK, seems to me that you're articulating two purposes. OK, so one would be, you know, like you sure don't want to, uh, you know, go up to Canada and because you've lived, lived and worked in Canada, be deprived of U.S. Social Security when most of your life is there. Right. Correct. Correct. So, so what the way this works is to treat the years that you were working in Canada uh, as there's no lapse in your working. We're going to count those two years, those years towards getting credit for U.S. Social Security purposes. Right. Correct. Correct. OK, so that's the first uh, benefit. And that's really the benefit to the to the individual taxpayer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second benefit, you're really. I think describing sort of on the on the corporate level, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Uh, you know, as to whether a company has to continue paying into this or not. Correct. All because right. it it it'll it'll it reduces their global tax liability or their assignment related expenses if the oh, person sure. is on an assignment. So, um, like I said, in most of the companies I've worked with managing this process, it's been the company that's that's initiated because they are saving money. Oh yeah, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I suspect that few individuals uh, think about it from that point of view. But uh, you know, there is no doubt that these things are, are huge expenses to these companies. Um. So, you know, after talking to you, I think I, I think I checked, and there aren't really that many of these totalization agreements around. Is it twenty six countries or something in that range? I think it's like. Might be forty. It's not that many. It's definitely not as many as we have um, tax treaties. Tax treaties, correct. And the countries don't necessarily match either. So we have totalization agreements in countries where we don't have income tax treaties, and we have tax treaties in countries where we don't have totalization agreements. So don't assume because we have one, we have the other, because that's not necessarily the case. Or don't assume because we don't have one that we have don't have the other, because that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, the biggest example is Brazil. We don't have an income tax treaty with Brazil, but we do have a totalization agreement with them. Is that a relatively new agreement? The agreement it with is them? like two, 20, it's in the, it's in the 2000s. So yeah, it, it that, might that, be. That, that's definitely yeah. new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's quite interesting. Uh, could you foresee a time when these things would just be folded into a general tax treaty? No, because they're, they're different functions. So there is a social, and this, this is where it gets confusing, if it's not confusing enough. So if you go to an income tax treaty, then there is a clause for pension uh, annuities and social security, but that relates to the tax benefits for when you receive the benefits. That then governs who gets the right to tax your social tax payments. So if I'm a US citizen, I'm living and working in Germany, and I receive payments from the U.S. Social Security Administration, that income tax treaty is going to govern whether or not basically Germany gets to tax those payments. And, and typically in most of the cases, social tax is treated, um, it's taxed based on the country making the payment. doesn't matter the residency of the person as long 
as um, they're a citizen or green card holder. So I can't imagine because the functions are different. I can't imagine them being folded in to, especially if we haven't, so in the example of Brazil, if we can't get to an agreement as far as an income tax treaty, I don't know that we ever will. We don't even have a draft with them. <laughs> so. So, so you mentioned Germany and uh, what you're saying is that the tax treaty, I mean, I'm asking as I'm not familiar with this, but mm -hmm. you're saying that the tax treaty would give Germany exclusive rights of taxation over the U.S. The U.S. It gives you the U.S. Typically, oh, as a country of payor. Correct. Correct. It's the country making the payment, not the country of residence of the recipient. So okay. those those benefits would and, and vice versa. If it's a German national coming into the United States and they're getting German social tax benefits, the U.S. cannot tax those benefits because of that income tax treaty. Mm -hmm. yeah. Unless they're also a U.S. citizen, I presume. Yes. Yes. U.S. citizens and green card holders. There's something in the income tax treaties called the savings clause, which basically prevents U.S. citizens and green card holders from taking advantage of income tax treaty benefits on that U.S. return. They could, so again, I'm in Germany. I can use all of those treaty benefits on my German return, but I can't use any of them on the U.S. return because of the savings clause. So presumably uh, that does guarantee certain instances of double taxation for U.S. citizens, right? Uh, if, especially if you aren't in a treaty country, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so there are, I think there are certain uh, types of taxes uh, where the uh, the tax treaty doesn't help in any case, things like the net investment income tax and that sort of stuff. Correct. And alternative minimum tax, things like that, yes. Yeah, boy, that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty horrible stuff. That's why they're there. It's to, it's to prevent <laughs> you from going around and using these additional tax tricks, primarily with people who have a lot of investment income. That's exactly why they're there is to say, oh, OK, we, we were able to, you were able to get all these benefits and use all these credits and things like that. Now we're going to come and hit you with a completely separate, separate but equal tax system to make sure that we get our money. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That doesn't sound so good, does it? So, well, I mean, since you bring it up, what are your thoughts on citizenship taxation anyway? I mean, you know, the U.S. kind of stands alone in that that category, doesn't it? They're not alone, but it's not a lot of us. So it's, uh, I want to say off the top of my head, Mexico and Russia are the only other countries that tax citizens, regardless if they're living and working in the United States. You know, it's one of those things that it just is. So, I mean, I understand why people think that it shouldn't be. However, most U.S. persons that live outside of the United States don't disconnect from the United States entirely. And for that reason, I can I can understand. So the whole point of so the, the way the IRS and, and the U.S. government treats you is if you are a citizen, and a green card holder or a green card holder, then you are subject to tax on your worldwide income as long as you are um, a citizen or if you're a green card holder, as long as that green card has not been administratively surrendered to a U.S. consular officer, which means that taxpayers that have their green cards that expired or um, they, you know, they didn't come back into the United States enough to keep them uh, active, 
then those green cards are still active for tax purposes, even if they're not eligible to be used for immigration purposes, which gets a lot of taxpayers into trouble because they're like, oh, you know, my green card expired five years ago. I haven't been filing taxes. You should have been filing taxes because you never surrendered that green card. But most U.S. citizens, they're coming back into the United States. I mean, they can they, they live overseas, but they may have investments. They may still have accounts. They're never disconnecting entirely. So the U.S. is still their domicile versus their tax home. So your domicile is your fixed permanent home, the place where you intend to return, even if you're gone for long periods of time. Your tax home is where do you come back at the end of every single day? U.S. citizens and green card holders are treated as if they're domiciled in the United States, meaning at some point you're coming back. And if you're not, give up your citizenship, give us that passport back, and then you got to get back in line with every other foreign national that's trying to get into the United States. A lot of U.S. people don't want to do that. They want the option. And so because of that, I get it. Um, a lot of, I mean, I know taxpayers in the European Union that, you know, they leave and they never think about going back. Like, nah, visit, but it, it's, it's not something like that. It, very few U.S. people generally um, even give up their citizenship. I think it was it was around 1,500 until COVID. Once we got to COVID, those numbers went up substantially. It, it went up to like 10,000 in a year. Before that was like 1,500 a year. Now it's like closer to 10,000 a year, but that's still not a lot of people considering how many people live in the United States. If 10,000 people are giving up citizenship a year, that's not a lot. And you have to pay. It's like $2,300 to give up your citizenship. You can't just give your passport back, you gotta pay. What, what do you think, though, about the whole uh, situation with these? I, I know this isn't a, a term in the Internal Revenue Code, but these these accidental Americans yeah. and that sort of stuff. What are your thoughts on that? It's not fair, but it's the law. So accidental Americans are taxpayers that were that are born either with um, one or both of their parents being American. Some of them have never been to the United States. Some of them don't speak the language. They are still required to report and pay taxes on their worldwide income and any other disclosures that would be required if they were in the United States. Um, some of them can't afford to um, give up their citizenship because of the $2,300 expense. So, um, and I've had conversations with some of the groups that are representing them. Um, I, I posted something a while ago and they thought it was, pro-IRS and anti-accidental Americans. And I was like, I'm just sharing an article that I saw. <laughs> I was familiar. You guys can calm down a little bit. And I understand their point of view, but the, lo the law is what it is. There's no, now, the reality of the situation. So just high level, the IRS does not have the resources to go into, you know, a farm in Italy and get a, you know, audit a sheep herder who makes $10,000 a year. Like that, that's not, that's, that's not, they're not going to get their money off of that person. So the chance while they're out of compliance, the chances of that person being audited and brought to justice or anything like that, it, it's just really, really low based on where we are today and the amount of funding they have today. Um, but it's still, the, it's, it's still the rules. A lot of times um, they don't owe any money, but the penalties for failing to file can be crippling and all but also the penalties for coming into compliance could also be crippling the penalty for expatriating could be you know they're kind of stuck in a lose-lose situation 
So it's not fair, but it's the law and it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. What about the whole exit tax issue? You know, you talk about the 2000, whatever it is, mm -hmm. 350 renunciation fee. What are your thoughts on applying an exit tax to these people, you know, if they've never lived in the United States? They have no U.S. assets. Yeah, that's not. I, I don't. I don't think that is was the intention when it was written. I if now if there's something they could do about that. Maybe if it was for a period of time, like for twelve or eighteen or twenty four months, if you want to renounce citizenship and you're an accidental American, you can do it, and we can waive the extra tax. I think that would be the best option. But um, I know there they have programs where you can come into compliance and. Um, you're not going to be penalized further, but it just, I think the IRS wants to keep that option open in the event that they do find some pocket of accidental Americans that are hiding assets and they want <laughs> the ability to go after them if they need to. So, so it's so not looking good. We're, we're talking about the whole renunciation thing. Let's, I mean, let's move this back into the social security. I mean, one of the questions that seem to always be on people's minds is if I renounce U.S. citizenship, Will I continue or am I, does it make me not eligible for social security? What's the, what's the deal there? It doesn't matter. If you earned your benefits, then you get your benefits. So I had, I had a client, she just passed away this year, unfortunately. Um, but she was a green card holder. She surrendered her green card. She still got her benefits. So instead of getting your benefits on the uh, form SSA 1099, you get them on a form SSA 1042. So same information, and then instead of having, um, you have tax withheld at 30%. So you're treated, that social security payments are treated the same as any other payment to a non-resident alien, which is where there's a 30% mandatory required amount um, to be withheld. So she would just get a 1042 SSA and her social security benefits would get hit with 30%, we would file the return and she would get most, if not all of that money back. So, okay, so um, if you're, uh, you know, just uh, make sure I get this. So mm -hmm. if you continue to be a US citizen. Correct. Uh, the social security income would be treated just, you know, as income received as a US citizen, right? Mm -hmm. And you would pay tax just based on, you know, Whatever, graduated. You know, where, mm -hmm. yeah, graduated wherever it ends up on the tax return. Mm -hmm. But if you renounce and become a non-resident alien, then it's treated as part of that what that FDAP regime. Yes, yes. So you would get a, um, you would get like I said, the the payments would be the same, the amounts would be the same. You would just get them reported on a different form. And there would be thirty percent tax withheld. Okay, yeah. subject to any subject to any treaty modification on that. Correct. Well. If there is an income tax treaty that provides for a lower benefit rate because of the treaty, then you would you could you could either adjust for that on a tax return, or in some cases you can go directly to the Social Security Administration and say, "Hey, I am a citizen or national of X Y Z country." please reduce that 30% to my treaty rate. And that that's beneficial because then you don't have to file a tax return to get the benefit, the, the difference. So if the treaty rate is 10%, they would withhold a 10%. You take your money at 90% and go and you don't have to file the tax return. Okay. So uh, do, do you know what the, off the top of your head, what the form is that you would uh, 
file with the Social Security Administration to do that? It, it would be a form W-8-B-E-N. Same one. Same mm -hmm. one. With you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's actually a table if you're if you're interested on the IRS's website called Tax Treaty Table One. You can just in the search box on the IRS's website at irs.gov look for Tax Treaty Table One, and it gives you all of the income tax treaty rates for that FDAP income, fixed, determinable, annual, or periodic. So if you're looking for Social Security rates by country, it'll tell you what the percentage is. So it's got the name of the country on the left hand side. It's got um, all of the treaty rates. And then it has footnotes that shows you exactly what article of the treaty provides you with that percentage. Yeah, if it's taxable at all, my recollection is that U.S. Social Security uh, payments are not taxable by the U.S. are received by people in Canada. Yeah, if, if, if the amount is 0%, it'll say 0%. But yeah. you would still complete the W-8 bin, and it'll give you the treaty article number so that you can put it on the W-8 BEN, reference at 0%, and then that's it. All right. So basically, anybody who um, meets the test of uh, 40 quarters or whatever, mm -hmm. at least it's got the foot in the door Yep, and uh, can begin the sort of discussion analysis from there. And who knows? I mean, it may or may not be worth it. But key point here, I guess, is that uh, U.S. citizens outside the United States are entitled to Social Security. The fact they live outside doesn't mean that goes away and that includes green card holders and even if they do renounce they're still entitled to this kind of stuff although after renunciation because they're a non-resident alien it may change the way they're taxed on the withholding right correct that is a great synopsis <laughs> right my god you know this has been a great discussion i thank you for it and uh of you know i don't think this is anything i've ever fully understood yeah <laughs> And I, I sort of I sort of recognize how it works when I'm looking at it, but uh, mm -hmm. you know it's not that complicated, but it is complicated to describe. It is, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things. I, I always say I'm super thankful that the IRS is is extremely complicated because it keeps me having conversations like this. <laughs> well, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, in, in your business, you know, running uh, running seminars on. Yeah. And this type of stuff, which is great. But speaking of that, as, as we bring this to a close, I thank you very much. This has been a fantastic discussion. But how would people get in touch with you if they want to know more or want to sit in on your seminars, which I would recommend? Or yeah. I gather you do do some, some, although not a whole ton of uh, expatriate tax preparation yourself. Is that right? That is very much so correct. Uh, my um, passion is teaching others how to handle these issues. I, I do have some, but it is very, it is very limited. Um, just because uh, I would rather people stay with the preparers that they have and work with that preparer to get them through, especially if they're not going to be gone forever. Uh, once you understand what needs to happen, each person's situation typically doesn't change that much. But if you need to get in contact with me, if you have any questions, you can go to my website, HaynesHelp.com, H-A-Y-N-E-S-H-E-L-P. There's links to my webinars. There's links to um, contact me if you have questions, specific questions, or if you want to jump on my calendar for 30 minutes, that would be the best way to do that. Yeah, no, it's great stuff. I mean, it's a virtual university, I think, on, you know, expatriate tax issues. That's the goal. <laughs> That's the I think goal. Well, along the way on that, great stuff. 
Thank All you. right. Um, I thank you very much for this. And I've enjoyed meeting uh, the little one as well. <laughs> well thank and, you for uh, having us. Any, uh, any closing thoughts or comments? You know, it's, it is complicated. I, I, I appreciate you saying that because it is complicated. But, um, you know, it's just knowing it's knowing where to look or knowing who to help you. Um, I also would say this is something that you probably should look into before you actually start your move, just to make sure that you understand. Um, even if you're moving with a company, a lot of times, especially if companies are moving people for the first time, these are things they haven't thought of. So um, you can get retroactive certificates of coverage, which could result in you getting back all of the social security and Medicare you've already paid. There's just a lot of ways that, that this can be handled. So I guess my closing thought is to think about this before you actually make the move because you can set yourself up to um, to create a, a, a much better either retirement plan or tax savings or both. Sort of like uh, who was it that said success favors the prepared mind, something like mm -hmm. that. That's good. I like that. <laughs> All right. That's great. Thanks so much, Katrina. Hopefully we can pick this up with another topic. Thank you. Thank you.